Lord, we know when we live upon this planet, there's always moments of trouble. Temptation, challenge, difficulty, frustrations, disappointments. But Lord, we also recognize that your presence is there, that your grace is there, that your hope is there, that your kindnesses are there, Father. Lord, we pray today that you would speak powerfully into our lives. Lord, so often you do things not as we anticipate, nor even as we desire. You give us more, actually, than what we really understand. And Lord, ultimately, you even transform our desires. Lord, you give us a heart after you, Father. You give us a desire to please you. You give us an encouragement and a comfort, Lord. And Lord, you continually grow us, develop us, shape us. And so, Father, I pray today that you would speak powerfully into the very innermost parts of our being, that we would hear your voice. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. Just turn me down a little bit more. That will be good. Thanks. I'm going to have you turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. I've already alluded to the story we're going to talk about this morning. Karl Marx, uh, we know his writings, he's shaped a whole economic system, Marxism, communism. He said that religion is the opiate of the people. In other words, it's really an escape from reality. That's, that's how he kind of shaped, and when he talked about religion, of course, he included all religions. But you know, Karl Marx was wrong. By this, we're not we're not advancing here. Okay. Okay, great. Marx was wrong. Religion is not the opiate of modern man. In other words, it's not it's not a drug. It doesn't it doesn't you know dull us to reality. He said, actually, what really is the opiate is the incessant sound that we're constantly hearing. I don't know if you noticed this, but you know, today, you know, people try to avoid silence above everything. And we kind of notice that. You know, uh, why else do we have so much, you know, long talk shows? I, I mean, you can, you can, you know, turn the TV on and it goes 24-7. You can turn the radio on and it goes 24-7. You know, you got call-in programs. I mean, people are constantly talking. And he, he um, Michael Green says, why is that? Because sound blocks out the despairing cry of our own souls as well as the still, small voice of God. How many here, you know, you can almost admit, you know, I'm uncomfortable with silence. Some people are. They just got to have noise all the time. How many have met people like that? They have to have noise all the time. Some of you are going, you're talking to me this morning. And I'm trying to tell you something that you're probably missing some things that you don't realize because there's something about being still, being quiet. Listen to what the psalmist writes. We just read it. Be still. Some of us, you know, we just can't be still. We're, we're constantly in motion. We gotta be doing something. You know, we've been taught we have to be productive. But how many know being still sometimes is highly productive? You know, how many believe that if you actually hear what God has to say, you might be the most productive? He says, 
and know that I am God. In other words, can you just back off and let God work? How many know that's probably a good thing? You know, to you know, give God space to operate. You know, we can see that you know, impatience wells up within us. One of the powerful ways for God to get our attention is when he is silent. What's God doing in that moment? I believe he's trying to get our attention. How many have ever been, you know, in a position, maybe you're a teacher, and uh, people are talking, and you just, all of a sudden, you're not saying anything. And then, and then eventually people start realizing you're not saying anything. And then people just get silent. God is trying to get our attention, folks. And sometimes when he's silent, he's working the hardest at getting our attention. And we're going to see that in the story. Many people at this point are tempted to ignore him. But what the psalmist states is that when we become still, God can move in a powerful way in our life. You know, it's interesting, after dealing with the confrontation with the Pharisees, I don't know how many were here last week, you know, I was really excited about preaching that sermon because I was trying to explain the understanding of the Jewish people regarding what is clean and unclean, holy and unholy, and they were talking about their traditions, and Jesus pointed out that some of the fencing that they were making around the law was actually impeding them from actually doing what God wanted them to do. They were actually in violation of it. And so we now pick up the story in Mark chapter 7 and verse 24 where Jesus withdraws from Galilee. And he goes into what we would consider today Lebanon, or in that day, Phoenicia. And so he goes up north, and it's very fascinating. The Phoenicians, or the people from Tyre, you know, were always considered, you know, well, at one point they were allies of King David. Remember, he got a lot of materials from there. But generally speaking, the northern kingdom were filled with idolaters, and we remember the story of King Ahab, and his wife came from there, and she was an idolater, and it ruined the nation. And so now as the nation has moved away from that kind of idolatry, there was always an animosity towards the people from the north. They were Gentiles. And they were unclean in the mind of a Jewish person. And so they were considered dogs. Now, you know, when you, you and I think about a dog, we always think about a pet, right? You know, a pet dog. But in the ancient world, generally speaking, dogs were, were actually wild animals, and they scavengered. They were kind of like scavengers, and they were considered filthy, unclean animals. And so, you know, in, when you were called the dog, remember the Philistine Goliath said to David, don't, don't treat me like a dead dog. That was a term of derision. It was not a positive expression. And so the people from Phoenicia were, in the minds of the people in Israel, dogs. They were just considered unclean people. How many think it's a little ironic that Jesus, after talking about what's clean and unclean, and he had declared all foods clean, it said, and by that, I think he was also making a deeper declaration, declaring that God determines who's clean and unclean. He goes to these unclean people. He goes north, and he, he's, he's trying to get away from, I, I think, a lot of the hostility, and, and he's trying to spend time, you know, this is kind of Jesus going on holidays with his disciples. Probably an opportunity to, you know, sit down with them and start explaining things to them, because, you know, how many know the disciples weren't always the sharpest knives in the drawer? 
they were a little dull at times. They didn't quite get things. And so Jesus wanted to explain things. And so he heads up there and in verse 24 it said, Jesus left that place and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. And he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know it. So he wanted time alone. He wanted privacy. How many here value, you know, alone moments? How many here you just need a little space once in a while? Anybody relate to that? That's part of the human equation. I just need a little space. Jesus was trying to get a little space. And yet he could not keep his presence secret. The fame that Jesus created, and, and let's face it, don't you think that when people find out that there's someone, that when they pray for the sick, they're healed, and, uh, you know, these miracles are happening all around Jesus, people with tremendous needs hear about it. And people who are needy and who are desperate are going to hear things like this, and it's going to bring a measure of hope inside of their hearts. And so his fame had extended beyond the borders of Israel. Verse 25, it said, as soon as she heard about him, this is the woman, a woman, a Syrophoenician woman, she said, who's, Mark tells us, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil or an unclean spirit. She came and fell at his feet. Now, New Testament scholar James Edwards says, in journeying to the vicinity of Tyre, and particularly in receiving this Syrophoenician woman, Jesus now is expanding the scope of his ministry beyond anything conceivable of the Messiah. Because in the Jewish people's mind, the Messiah was their Messiah. And yet Isaiah had said that he would be a light to the Gentiles in Isaiah chapter 61. You know, you got to read your Bible carefully, Right? And so he was moving beyond, but you see, you know, we, we tend to focus on ourselves. And so Jesus was moving beyond that. And from a social religious perspective, Jesus' visit to Tyre universalizes the concept of the Messiah in terms of geography, ethnicity, gender, and religion in a way entirely unprecedented in Judaism. In other words, Jesus is shattering any Jewish person's understanding of the scope of his mission. Though Jesus' first priority was whom? The Jews. And you know, even the Apostle Paul, when he went out and did ministry, what did he say? The gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. So there is a sense of priority. So both, as we come into the story, both Mark and and now we're going to have to look at Matthew because Mark gives more of an abbreviated story and Matthew kind of gives us some other aspects. I'm going to put them together and we're going to look at the story Because in this story, we're going to get a glimpse of the human and divine response to people in crisis. Did we ever get in crisis? How many here have ever experienced a crisis in their life? Anybody have that? If you haven't, you haven't lived long enough. I hate to tell you, but in this world, you're going to have a few crises. You're going to have some tribulation and trial. We were kind of talking the other day. People who think that life should be easier are always disappointed. People who have an understanding that life is difficult will be able to handle life far better. Life is challenging. It's not meant to be easy, folks. Okay, does everybody get this? If you can get this one lesson, you're going to handle life a lot better. So don't be surprised, you know, when, you know, things don't always work out the way you want them to. You know, just when you think you've got it exactly the way you want it, things change on you. 
You know, just when things are really comfortable, a problem enters into your life. Or someone you love, and it begins to affect your life. And so how do we handle those moments that come into our lives? Disappointment, loss, sadness, challenge. They're going to happen, and some of you are faced with those things. And so I want to focus on these things from this story that we're looking at today. And I think there's three truths that will help us understand God's way in a time of crisis. How does God operate in our lives in times of our crisis? And the first one is when he is silent. Often God seems silent. You know, I've read the Psalms, and I don't know if you can relate to them, but when the psalmist writes, how long, O Lord, how long? Anybody ever prayed, how long is this going to continue? How long is this going to go on? Is there ever going to come an end to this situation? And you know, at, you know, at first when you meet the problem, sometimes you kind of rise up to it. But you know what really wears you down? When nothing changes. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like continuous sandpaper. And after a while, you know, your optimism fades. How many have ever had, anybody relate to what I'm talking about? You know, at first, you know, you're, you rise to the challenge, you're excited, yeah, God's going to handle it, and then God doesn't do anything. And then your optimism begins to fade. Anybody relate to this? Am I talking to the right group? Your optimism is fading, and you're beginning to question, you know, where in the world is God? And you're thinking to yourself, I am talking to God, but this just doesn't seem to be changing. And you're wondering in your mind, how long can this go on? And when a month goes by, you think you can't survive. And then two months go by, and you go, how did I do it? And then a year goes by, and you're going, am I getting numb or what? Is there, this is ever going to change? Because God doesn't seem to be doing anything about the situation. I think what makes crisis worse when it seems that God doesn't answer our cry the way we anticipate or desire. And so this woman comes to Jesus, and we pick up the story. i got to go to Mark, because, Matthew, because he kind of fills in a little more detail. And he says this, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre, and he adds, and Sidon, which is basically the region of the, the Phoenicians, or Lebanon. A Canaanite woman, so it tells you, you know, remember the Canaanites were the people they were supposed to dis displace, who came from that vicinity, came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And Jesus did not answer a word. He ignored her. You know, you can handle a lot of things in life, but how many people hate to be ignored? Don't you feel, you know, you're slighted. This isn't fun. I'm being ignored. And... He doesn't say anything. So his disciples eventually come to him and they urge him. They said, could you please send her away? She keeps crying after us. Now, you know, Mark says it's happening in the house. You almost get the picture. It's not here, but I think it's happening. I mean, she's hanging with these guys and she's not letting go. She's like my granddaughter, you know. She's intense, you know. My poppy is going to carry me to that van and nobody else is going to pacify her. Of course, she was a little overtired, but you know, anybody relate to you know, little kids, that's what happens to them. But that's what they felt. You know, let's get rid of this lady. She's driving us. She's bugging us. She's annoying us. There's, you've never met an annoying person in your life. Yeah. How do we get rid of these, this gal? I mean, she is really bothering us. You know, it's kind of interesting in the Bible. It seems like the annoying people kind of get what they want. 
They just keep at it. They just wear you down. This woman now is crying out to God. I think there's a lesson to be said here. You know, I've even heard some, theolo- you know, some of these, what I call contemporary pop theology, where they say, you know, if you have to ask God twice, that's not faith. I'm going, you know what? Where do you find that in the Bible? Because I read this story, and then I read the story of the woman who was, you know, the parable Jesus tells people that always to pray and not to faint. And this woman persisted in her urging this unjust judge to give her justice. And Jesus commended her because of her persistence. And then he challenges us, you know, will we have any faith on the earth? And so God wants to know, do we really want what we're asking for? And so often we ask for a lot of things we really don't want. But I'll tell you, when you're in crisis and you get desperate and you become more, you know, what, what can I say, annoying, there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of, you know, this has got to happen, God. I think God pays attention. I think he's paying attention all along, but I think he really pays attention to that. He goes, this person is crying out after me. Now the disciples, they just said, you know, can you handle this? Just get rid of her, you know? How do we address the silences of God? How do you handle it when God's not answering? You know, you may think, well, does God care? Why didn't he do something? Then, then the thing, why didn't he prevent it? You know, as followers of Christ, we are really uncomfortable with God's silence. I think we're actually uncomfortable with silence. What we see in this incident is that Jesus is going to draw out her faith. How many see that? When you read the whole story, you're going to see that he's drawing out something from her life. And so Jesus says nothing. You know, trials bring out both the best and the worst in us. How many can say that's true? It does. Doesn't it do that? You know, we have great declarations of faith, we walk, you know, but then there's other moments where we're, you know, falling down and we're whining and, you know, we're carrying on, we're throwing a temper tantrum, we're doing all kinds of stuff, we're manipulative, we're bargaining. Are you guys getting it? All of those things are happening in a trial. And what we see is that Jesus here is actually using this trial to fashion and develop something in her life. You know, this is not popular today. I'm going to say something that's not popular. This is not politically correct, okay? This is going to be biblically correct, but it's not politically correct. It's not even church correct, because we don't want to hear this. But, you know, it says in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 3, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. How many here say, yay, I'm suffering? You know? You're all laughing. Because we know that suffering produces something. What does it produce? Perseverance. How many think perseverance is a great virtue to have? I think it's a great quality. See, this woman is now persevering in her difficulty. Then perseverance produces what? Character. And I'm not just talking about that kind of character, you know. We're talking about you know, the depth of character, someone who's, you know, mature, someone who's patient, someone who's able to handle adversity and difficulty. You can see the level of maturity developing in this person. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And so it's as we endure through these experiences and we find that our trust is in God, and after a while, this is going to sound strange, but it doesn't matter anymore. The trial is no longer the issue. When you get to that point, now you're, now you're moving. Now you're cooking. 
Something is happening inside of you. All of a sudden now, it's about the good thing God is doing in me. The good thing God is doing in me. It's no longer about getting my way. It's about the good thing God is doing in me. That's when I know we're maturing, you know. Yet often when we're ministering to others in their crisis, how many know we almost feel like we need to give an answer? And that really can put us in a dangerous point. You know, the disciples' response to the woman in need is to appeal to Christ. That does, doesn't that sound good? They're praying. They're coming to Jesus too. But why are they praying? You know, are they praying because they're brokenhearted that this woman is in this crisis? Or are they praying to get rid of her? I don't know. I just have my thoughts about this. You know, do we care about the challenges others are facing? Are we praying on their behalf? In essence, they're asking Jesus to do something. Please answer her prayer. Please get rid of her. Do something with her. We don't know how to handle her. She's annoying us. Or maybe she was embarrassing them. Does God embarrass us when he doesn't respond in a manner we think he ought to? You know, when people are challenging us. I thought you were a Christian. I thought you believed. I thought God does these great things. Why isn't he doing that? Why isn't God answering that prayer? When things don't turn out the way we think they should, or God doesn't answer in the way we anticipate, do we distance ourselves from that person still in need? Or do we become like Job's covetors, trying to give reasons why nothing seems to be happening? You know, like, okay, I'm going to give you all the reasons why God isn't doing this. Or do we just become silent and say, you know, I have no idea why God's not working in this situation the way we would like him to. But he's still God. And I'm going to keep praying with you. I'm going to keep standing with you. But here in Matthew we read, and so the disciples came to him and they urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. What is our response to others in crisis? And especially when they're grieving. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We're not comfortable ourselves with loss and grief. Yet God understands. He is he is a fellow sufferer. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to walk through the valley of tears with us. And, you know, when we go through our hard places and we change, we become a different person. And I think we become effective. None of us will really be an effective minister to people until we have personally suffered. That's a very strong statement, but I believe it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes here. Now, I think he was an effective communicator. Uh, and the reason he was so effective in ministering to people in their pain and suffering was because he himself had suffered. There was an identity there. As a matter of fact, he says this in 2 Corinthians, which is probably the closest to an autobiography of the Apostle Paul. He said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You know, it's really, it, you know, when we've gone through it ourselves and God has done some things in our lives, we are able to share what God has done for us, which proves to be a word of encouragement and comfort to those that are experiencing 
these things themselves. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. You know, it's interesting being a minister. I'll just share a little bit with you, you know, that's helped me. Because I've been a Christian for a long time now. And sometimes, you know, God's allowed things into my life, and I go, why are you doing this? And I've read stuff by other pastors that said, you know, if you don't get touched with pain, you will not be very empathetic to people who are in pain. Isn't that true? It sure is. You know, sports writer Mitch Albom, who said one day he had he heard that his favorite college professor whom he hadn't seen in 20 years, was dying of Lou Gehrig's disease. You know, it's a very debilitating disease. And so he began to renew their relationship, and they started meeting weekly. And uh, in his best-selling book, Tuesday was with Maury, Album describes their visits. And he said one day they were having a conversation, and this is a man who's now dying, right? And he said, he asked Maury Schwartz, this is the professor, why he why he uh, bothered following the news since he wouldn't be around to see how things would turn out anyways. And this was Maury's insightful response. I think it's kind of a brilliant response into empathy. He says, you know, it's hard to explain, Mitch. Now that I'm suffering, I feel closer to people who suffer than I ever did before. As a matter of fact, the other night I was watching on TV some people in Bosnia. They were running across the street. They were being fired on. There was killing and there was victims. And he said, I just broke down and started crying. He said, I felt their anguish as if it were my own. I don't know any of these people, but how can I put this? I'm almost drawn to them. Jesus understands our sufferings in a special way since he himself suffered. Here's the good news. Jesus is drawn to people who are suffering. Isn't that amazing? He's a magnet. He just gets drawn to us in our pain. He identifies with us in our weakness. You know why? Because he's been touched with the feelings of our weakness. He knows what it is to suffer. When I look at the life of Jesus, he knows what it is to be alone. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to be, you know, crucified. He knows what it is, you know, to be misunderstood. He knows what it is to be shamed. He knows what it is to experience all of these things in our lives. And so when he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And so when you and I are suffering, we can look into the eyes of a God who knows all about suffering. You know, most of the religions in the world, God, it seems, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful in their thinking. But you know what? You and I serve a suffering God. He's touched, he's empathetic, he's compassionate, he's moved with compassion. These are things that bring hope to us. Sometimes our suffering determines God's purposes for our lives. We enter into a field of ministry that we may have been blinded to, but because of our own encounter with these needs, they shape the direction and purposes of our lives. That's true. You know, Pat Krenz talks about losing your nine-week-old baby. That's a pretty painful experience, to lose a child at nine weeks. A lot of parents never recover from that. You know, a lot of parents, they actually, their marriages fall apart. There's just so much that goes on. There's so much grief, brokenness, blaming, all kinds of stuff that happens in the loss of a child. She says, we were so young, 22 at the time. You can, you know, and we hear people try to give us words of comfort like, well, you can always have another baby. How many know that that doesn't make anybody feel better? 
You know, it's nice you can have another child, but what about the one I just lost? You can never replace the one you lost. You know, talk to people who lose a child. You never replace that child. You know, but God understands that. He gave up his child. She said, you know, or you, you know, or, or, or the other statement, you already have a healthy child. You should be thankful. Well, of course, I'm sure she's thankful for having a healthy child, but how does that help when you've lost a child? For two years, she floundered, trying to understand the craziness of grief. Her mother, who had lost three children, offered her comfort, but a contact outside the family helped her. Pat met another young woman. Her name was Cheryl, who was a grieving mother at the Mayo Clinic, where her son Michael, who had been operated on and lost his life, and she, she found that Cheryl had a faith and as, and, and as a background in nursing, helped Pat to go through, you know, this time of grief. That journey through heartache led Pat to a, form a bereaved parent support group. All of a sudden now she's moving in a direction she would have never moved in. How many can see that? So often it's in our sorrow, our loss, our pain, our difficulty, our trial. God begins to rechange the focus of our life because most of us, we have bought into a dream that we have these perfect bodies and this perfect life and everything works for our lives. Isn't that kind of the dream here on earth? What we want is heaven on earth. And God is preparing us for heaven beyond. And many times the things that we're experiencing on this planet is shaping our lives to prepare us for the future. But also creating something within us to help us minister effectively in the now. I think we've got to look at problems a lot differently. And eventually she you know, did this amazing ministry because of her own loss. A demonstration of persistent faith. Here in our text, there's something insightful about the woman's request. She persisted, even though she was outside of the covenant of faith. She still believed that Jesus could meet the needs of her daughter. She called him the son of David, which shows at least a measure of his messianic role. How many hadn't come to this point in their own spiritual journey? Do you know what is ironic, what Mark is doing? He's giving us a contrast between the unbelieving Pharisees and the slow, dull disciples. And here's a woman who's not even a part of the covenant of faith who gets it. Isn't that amazing? And by the way, Mark is writing, you know, 30 years after Jesus' death, he's writing from Rome and he's got a primarily Gentile audience. And what is he basically saying? Don't feel excluded, brothers and sisters. There were Gentiles in the ministry of Jesus and they got it. He's encouraging them. As a matter of fact, isn't it interesting that, you know, Jesus, when he was talking to his own people from his own hometown, he uses two illustrations of people that were actually outside of the, you know, the covenant of faith. You know, the, the prophets going out to the woman of Zarephath, the widow, you know, that was, you know, out of oil. She was not a part of the covenant of faith, and the miracle happened there, and how God provided for this widow who wasn't even a person, a Jewish person. I want to declare to you today that God is not only caring for Christians, He's caring for everyone on this planet. Regardless of where they're coming from, regardless of the kind of understanding that they have. This request was not for herself, but for her daughter. It ought not to surprise us that behind many crisis situations, there is demonic activity, even like there was in the story here. In her case, her daughter was suffering terribly. 
And as we look at the news and the way things are playing out today, some of the things that are happening, how can you describe what's going on? It makes no sense unless you understand there's an evil influence inspiring and motivating people to do some of the things they do. That's the only way you can explain the evening news. Some of it's just pure demonic. And then some people question, why would God allow these things to happen? Why does God allow sin and Satan to work such devastating consequences in our world? Why doesn't God stop these things before they happen? And many struggle and share that the reason why they can't believe in God is because of such demonically inspired atrocities or the pain and injustice that so often are seen in the world. I think we have to be careful in not blaming God for the sinful activities of men inspired by demonic forces. I love this story. A certain preacher and an atheist barber were walking through the city slums. The barber said, I can't believe in a God of love. Take a look around you. If God is as kind and as good as you say he is, he would never permit this kind of poverty, disease, and squalor. He wouldn't allow these poor street people to get addicted. No, I can't believe in a God who permits such things. The minister was silent until they met a man who was especially unkept. His hair was hanging down his neck. He had about a half an inch of stubble on his face. The preacher turned to his friend. He said, I can't believe you're a good barber who would permit a man like this to continue living here without a haircut and shave. Indignant, the barber said, why blame me for that man's condition? He's never come into my shop. If he had, I would have fixed him up and made him look like a gentleman. The preacher said, well, then don't blame God for allowing people to continue in their evil ways. He invites them to come and be saved. That's pretty smart. I think he got a point across. Who did Jesus finally answer? The disciples or the woman or both? Jesus turns to the woman. This is an amazing statement. He goes, first let the children eat all they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Verse 27, chapter 7 of Mark. What's Jesus saying? Probably the most offensive statement, right? I've already talked about this. Dogs were associated with uncleanliness because they ate garbage carrying in corpses. Likewise, the expression was a term for people judged worthless and dispensable. But remember, when he used the word dog there, in the Greek language, it's a diminutive of dog. So some people actually translate it puppies. And she kind of picks up on this, you know? Because, you know, let's face it, they, not only were there the dogs outside, the wild dogs, but, you know, every once in a while people had domesticated a dog and some people had them as pets. And so some, you know, scholars will debate, what did Jesus mean here? But I don't know what he meant, but she picked up on his use of that Greek term of dogs as a diminutive term, like maybe puppies. And she takes it and says, you know, Lord, you know, you're right. But even the crumbs fall off the table and the puppies get it. She goes, you don't have to give. She's basically saying, I may not be entitled to what you've come to give, but she says, just give me a scrap from the table. I'll be happy with that. That's all I need. Amazing statement. You know, Jesus said here in Matthew 15, 24, he said, basically, what he, you know, the same story here. Matthew's saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, my primary mandate is to them. I can't take what is, belongs to them and give it to you is what he's saying to her. Let me move on to the second truth. And that's the realization of our spiritual condition. We discover very quickly in crisis whether we really trust God or not. How many know that's true? That comes across real fast. We find that God isn't working with us based on what we've done, but rather based on what he's done. 
You know, if we come to God and say, you know, I've, ser- you know, I've heard this. I've served you all these years, Lord. Why are you letting me down now? Come on now. See, we think that if we have done the right thing long enough, God owes us something. Come on. Yeah, that's right. We do. Hey, God, haven't I done this for you? Haven't I done that for you? You cannot come to God based on that. It just never flies with God. That's not the right approach. It doesn't work. Here in our text, we discover this woman, you know, she has no grounds for Jesus to grant her petition. She wasn't even a child of God. She didn't belong. Notice she didn't argue with Jesus. She didn't demand her rights because she had none. But she appealed to the idea that even people outside of the covenant of faith could expect mercy from God. And he would not be diminished by her request. She goes, yes, Lord, I don't dispute this. I don't dispute you've come for the Jews. But she said, you know what? Even the dogs get the scraps. All I need is the scraps from the table. Because remember how he had said it. You know, it's not right for me to give the children's bread. She says, yeah, that's true, Lord, but just give me the scraps. Because I notice that scraps do fall off the table and the little puppies get it. Notice... It was Jesus who pointed out her position. We, how we make the assumption regarding the grace of God. And I love what German pastor and theologian Helmut Tillich insightfully points out regarding this truth. The woman doesn't debate with Jesus. She recognizes that he's right. She has no ground for her appeal. And this means that I accept the justice of your silence, of your ignoring me. It is by no means self-evident that you should help me. You are right to pass on by Jesus. I have no claim on you. We do well to grasp the tremendous implication of this thought, for it is to the effect that my acceptance by God cannot be taken for granted. Do we take God for granted? I think so. Does God owe us anything? He owes me nothing. I owe him everything. He died for me. He's the one that, you know, grace is a gift given that's free. Grace, you know, the forgiveness is not something I deserve. How many here you deserve to be forgiven by God? Raise your hand. You deserve God to, God owes you forgiveness. Of course not. That's ridiculous, pastor. We don't believe that. But yet we act like he owes us something. We have a culture that's just filled with entitlement. Everybody owes somebody. You know, we're we're all entitled to this. Folks, I'm going to shock you. We're not entitled to God's grace. God owes me nothing. He owes you nothing. This is what Tillich is trying to point out. He's saying, listen, get out of that mindset. It's a wrong thinking. You know, it's the mercy of God that we get anything from God. It's the grace of God that we're forgiven. It's the grace of God that we're part of his family. It's the grace of God that he loves us. It's the grace of God that he heals us. It's the grace of God that he does anything for us. Men, we should be so grateful, so thankful, so humble, so appreciative of everything God does for us. And yet I hear people all the time, well, why doesn't God do this? Or why doesn't God do that? Or why doesn't he do this more for me here? I'm thinking, man alive, you know? Do we have the right thinking or what? Wrong thinking. You know, Voltaire, 
you know, he, he goes on to say, you know, we Christians have gradually become accustomed to the dangerous and, and unhealthy idea that God owes us something. He says, Voltaire cynically said of the forgiveness of God, it's his job. In other words, it's God's job to forgive. <laughs> Voltaire, by the way, was an atheist, if you don't know who he is. But this is not so. Things are quite different from the popular assumption. The kingdom of God is not thrust upon us. The grace of God can also be silent. Wow. We certainly cannot claim it. And it may be, and if not so, I cannot blame God that in my last hour I sink into darkness and the one figure who may be with me through the gloomy portal will be missing. See, everything that we're getting is grace. Grace upon grace. Do we really understand it? You know, we're not only saved by grace, we live by grace every single day. Everything that you have is the grace of God. Do you know that? Your breath is the grace of God. Your health is the grace of God. Your ability to think is the grace of God. The people God's put in your life is the grace of God. I'm trying to change your frame of thinking. See, because I think we think God owes us something. And I'm trying to tell you he owes you nothing. Now, let me say it to you this way. You're a parent. Some of you are parents. How many are parents? Does your, do you owe your children anything? Not necessarily, but because you're a parent and your deep love for them, you give them everything. That's how you need to understand God. God is so gracious. He's so good. Let me move on to the third truth. And it's simply this, is that when we, God's way in crisis is actually the development of a transforming faith. One powerful thought is that faith is developed in the fires of affliction and testing. It is in those hours we must move past the superficial and intellectual belief and be stained by an abiding refuge in the presence of the living God. In other words, I don't really care how much you know. Once you get into a trial, I'll find out how, what you really know. How many say that's probably true? That's when we find out, we move past, you know, an intellectual, mental ascent faith to the practice and the participation and the experience of genuine faith. Because in crisis, you can, it doesn't work anymore. You've got to live. You've got to live it out. You're being challenged now to put what you've learned into practice. You know, I, I can sit down and teach people things. You know, we can teach, we could sit down and have a manual, how to ride a bike. And we could talk about it every single day for the next week. How to ride a bike. I can tell you what the bike is made of, what the pedals, how things work. We can, we can discuss it. We can analyze it. We can break it down, you know, balance. and All the different things that go into bike riding. But how many know you're never going to ride a bike until you get on that bike and you start riding? I don't care how many books you read on it. And I think there's a lot of Christians, they think they, they think they have more faith than they really have. And the only way you find out how much faith you have is when you get into trouble. When you're in crisis. When you're afflicted. When you're tested. When you're tempted. All those things. Now we find out what kind of faith you have. How developed is your faith? And actually, I'm convinced that that's what really develops faith. 
when God stretches us out, when God is not answering right away, when God is allowing us to struggle a little bit, when we, when we try to, you know, fix things and it, makes, and it turns out worse, and then we're, then we're beside ourselves, you know, and we start questioning, you know, does God really care about me? And then there's people, you know, coming along and trying to comfort us and telling us all the things we're doing wrong. And so you get all of these things happening at one time, and you can be discouraged, and you think, I'm going to give up, I'm going to quit, Right? Come on, that's what happens. I don't know if this is worth it. I don't even know if God exists anymore. I mean, we hear all these conversations, but that's really what's developing faith in our life. How about Job, in his case? His hour of testing, though confusing, brought about a deeper faith in God. Faith trusts God regardless if we understand what's going on or not. Isn't that true? At the end of the day, we go, okay, God, I can't figure out what's going on, but I'm still going to trust you. Though you slay me, I'm still going to trust you. God, I don't know where else to turn. I'm still going to trust you. You know, Peter Kreff uh, is quoted in, in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith, and, it's, and he's talking, you know, because he's a philosopher, and he's trying to bring out this idea how God works in our life. He says, how can a mere finite human being be sure that infinite wisdom would not tolerate certain short-range evils in order for more long-range good? that we cannot foresee. And he kind of uses an example. He said, imagine a bear trapped in a trap and a hunter goes out and he sees this bear trapped in a trap and he decides instead of killing the bear, he wants to liberate the bear and so he's got his gun and he put a tranquilizer in it and he shoots the bear with a tranquilizer. I mean, when that gun is aimed at the bear, the bear is thinking, this is it. You know, and he gets tranquilized, and the hunter goes down there, and he's trying to open up the trap. Now, how many know the bear, when he sees the hunter, he's not realizing that the, bear, the hunter is trying to help him at this point. Then in order to get the bear to the trap, he has to push him further into the trap to release the tension on the springs. If the bear were semi-conscious at this point, he would be even more convinced that the hunter was his enemy out to cause him suffering and pain. Would he not? He's an animal, just instinctual, right? But the bear would be wrong because his understanding is too limited. Kraft lets the illustration soak in for a moment. Now he concludes, how can anyone be certain that's not an analogy between ourselves and God? I believe God does the same thing to us sometimes and we can't comprehend why he does it any more than the bear can understand the motivation of the hunter. As the bear could have trusted the hunter, so we can trust God. We have to believe... And I think this is where real faith comes along, where we believe, like the Apostle says in Romans chapter 8, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love him. So if I love God and God is allowing these things into my life, then God is working something good out, but I, I just feel evil. I just experience difficulty. I'm here in pain wondering, what is God doing in my life? And God is saying, I'm getting you out of the trap. And you're going, God, you have a fine way of doing it. But, you know, sometimes to release the spring, further pain, you know? Wow. I could have used other illustrations. We could talk about a doctor diagnosing us and saying you got cancer and we're going to do this treatment. And some of you are thinking the treatment's worse than the cure, you know? Right? Come on, we can go on and on about this. 
When we don't understand what's occurring, we grasp for comforting and sustaining grace. And the woman's response to Christ's challenge, what a beautiful response. And what does Jesus say at the end about this woman? You know, in Matthew, Mark doesn't tell us this, but Matthew says this in 1528. He said, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Let me just close with comment by Telica. He said, she had triumphed because she had taken the Savior at his word. She had caused the heart of God to prevail against the silence of God. This is why she had great faith. Can you pass by someone who has set all of these aside, expects everything only of your love and generous hands? Can you do the Savior of Nazareth? Jesus cannot, as Martin Luther said, this woman takes Jesus at his own words, especially in the saying that he loves the hungry and the thirsty, the spiritually poor, and that he will not despise a contrite heart. She has done what none other could do, namely entangled him in his own talk. She has flung the sack of his promises at his feet, and he cannot step over. It is not her great faith that has triumphed. She has triumphed because she has taken him at his word, and she has caused the heart of God to prevail against the silence of God. I like that. That's why she has great faith. What crisis are you in today? What trial are you experiencing today? And what I'm trying to tell you today is God is there. He may not be doing what you want him to do, But he knows exactly what he's doing to make you a stronger person. To make you trust him more. For you to grow up. For you to become more persevering. For you to develop character. For you to have a greater hope. Do you know why some people, they can go through what they go through? It's kind of like school. You got to do grade one before you do grade two. Why? Because you got to learn certain things about letters before you can learn how to read. You can have to learn how to read before you can do research. Are you following what I'm saying? There's certain steps to growth. God has to take us through certain steps to grow. And it's amazing how some people, they have matured. They have walked through sorrow upon sorrow. You know, so when something hits them, they don't just cave in and fall apart, they just rise up and say, Lord, You know, you have been faithful in this situation. You were faithful in that situation. You've been faithful in this situation. Even though I threw a temper tantrum over there, I got upset with you over here, you know, I got frustrated over there, but now, Lord, I know what you're like. I can trust you. I can trust you in this trial because I know you will never leave me nor forsake me. Those aren't just words on the book. Those are words I've experienced. What God wants to do in our lives is move us from an intellectual understanding of Scripture into the practical application of Scripture. And many times he does that through crisis. Let's stand. How many here today say, Pastor, with every head bowed, this is a time of crisis in my life? I know there's crisis. I'm a pastor. I'm dealing with people in crisis. I'm a pastor. You know what? For you, you're in, the, you're in your crisis, but there's other people around. Believe me, there's, there's a lot more than one crisis in our church right now. I'm going to tell you that right now. There's a lot more than one crisis. There are many crises going on right now. And I know that only God 
can work in those situations. You know, as a human being, you know, I was reading an interesting quote this morning, really early in the morning. It says, sometimes doing nothing is wisdom. Sometimes saying nothing is wisdom. How many know that's true? I, I can prove that. God sometimes says nothing. He's wise. You know, we think we've got to rush in. No, sometimes God's got to work on hearts. God's got to work on situations. Got to give God an opportunity to work. How many here, you're, you're a more mature Christian now. You can say, Pastor, I know exactly what you're talking about. I used to try to fix people, and then I realized that's pretty pointless. You know, that doesn't usually work. Anybody have that? Anybody understand what I'm talking about? What I have learned over the years, and I've been a Christian 40 years now, and I've been a pastor 33, so that's a little while. I do more praying. Say, Lord, you have to work on these guys. You've got to open them up to you. I can't do that. Only you can. You know? And how many know that there's a moment people are ready to receive? And then there's other moments. It's like taking your good words and putting it before a pig. It's just going to eat it. Not going to appreciate it. Not going to value what you're saying. They're not ready for that word. How many know what I'm talking about? There's the right moment. Sometimes, you know, you want to say something, you go, this is not the right. You, you feel the Holy Spirit saying, don't say anything. It's not the right moment. They're not going to receive that. They're not ready for that word yet. Isn't that true? It is true. Why am I saying all of this to you today? Because everyone in this room, at some point, you're going to go through a crisis. Some of you are in it. Some of you have gone through it. Some of you are going to go through it again. A different type of crisis. We're all going to go through these things. The Chinese, I love their character for crisis. It's not just, it's, it's, it's warning and opportunity. We can either mess up in the crisis or we can grow in the crisis. We can either become bitter in the crisis or we can become better in the crisis. We have a choice. And what I'm suggesting for you guys today is to keep petitioning Jesus. He'll help you walk through that crisis. It's going to take a little longer than you think. It's going to be frust more frustrating than you think because what it's bringing out of it, us is our, our measure of impatience, our own impatience. It's going to bring out you know, our self selfishness. You know, I shared, I shared yesterday in our church to teachers, I said, let me ask you a question. What is your purpose for living? And I'm going to tell you what God's purpose for your life is, to please Him and not yourselves. How hard is it to learn that lesson, not to live to please yourself and to please God and to please others? How hard is that? Very hard. Thank you. That's a good answer. Very difficult. I'll tell you, I'd say it's impossible apart from the grace of God at work in our hearts. Amen? I need God's grace. How many go, I need God's grace? I can't do it. I can't do it apart from God. So I want to pray for you. You're in a crisis right now. You know what? Raise your hand. It's okay. Don't be ashamed. We're all, you know, we're going to all go through times of trouble. In crisis. God wants to speak to you today. He's trying to encourage you. Say, listen, listen don't, 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 don't get impatient in the crisis. Let God work in you. Let God work inside of your soul. This is a good thing for you. Embrace your crisis is what I'm telling you to do and say, God, I'm holding it here and I'm going to allow this 
crisis, the suffering, to refine me to the person you want me to become. You have chosen this crisis for me. It's specially designed for me. You know, and I'm not going to reject it. I'm going to embrace this moment in my life. I'm going to allow you to do a work of grace in my soul. I'm going to come out of this, Lord, like gold. Job said that I'm going to come out shining like gold. I'm going to be refined. I'm going to be purified. How many like that idea? I want to be more than what I am. I want to become better than what I am. Anybody want to be better than what you are? A trial will help that if you handle it the right way. How do I handle it the right way, Pastor? You begin to cry out to Jesus. You keep praying, my brothers, my sisters. You keep crying out to him, Lord, help me to make good choices. Help me to be wise in this thing. Help me to know what to say and what not to say. Give me the strength to walk through it. Give me the grace to go through this experience. Lord, teach me every single lesson. I want to suck up every lesson I can out of this experience. I want to grow and become more like you through this experience. I want to discover joy in the midst of the experience. Oh, that's even a greater lesson, that you're now rejoicing in your suffering. How many say that's maturity when you can do that? That's a whole new level. Most of us are going, we're just enduring it. But how to get to that point where I'm rejoicing in it? I'm going, I'm not rejoicing because of it. I'm rejoicing in spite of it. I'm rejoicing because God is good to me in spite of my suffering. Boy, I'm telling you, that's maturity. You see what's going on inside of us. God is using a tool, and we're being fashioned by it. But usually what we, in our culture, we despise it. We're trying to run and, and, and get rid of all the problems in the world, like we could do this. We're all trying to play God, and we're not God at all. We're weak, and he's using these tools. And don't let humanity fool you. We don't have all the answers. Anybody tells you that, they're a liar. We don't have all the answers. This life is designed to make human beings trust God. I believe that with all of my heart. We will never have all the answers. I don't care how brilliant you are. I don't care how great of a theologian you are. I don't care how smart of a scientist you are. We will never have all the answers, folks. That's the truth. This life is designed to make us trust God. All right. We can rebel against it. That's not mean that we shouldn't pursue answers. I don't, I, I'm a big pursuer of answers. But I hold this intention. I know I won't have them all.